The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. It's great to be back. I hope everyone had a great uh, holiday break. Excited for this conversation with my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. Elliot, let's kick it off with you. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. I uh, hope you had a great holiday period, or at least a relaxing one and uh, good, good times with family. Um, it was uh, quite the end to the year. I hope you also enjoyed a couple of our special episodes in the meantime. Um, I was excited to have done that fireside chat with Nick Devlin. I think it was really interesting. And you know, even myself, someone deep in the weeds of the company, learned um, some good new tidbits through it all. So uh, now back to the regularly scheduled program. And it's going to be back uh, with my partners in crime here. So um, you know, I think one, the topic that I wanted to talk about today is we all know the S&P had a very strong year uh, last year. And there's, you know, this big divide that's happening in markets right now that's less talked about, though it's been increasingly discussed in recent days as it's been like exaggerated and more pronounced. And the divide I'm talking about is not about growth versus value, right? You might have thought I was going there. No, it's actually about large versus small and mid caps. And I think there's a great chart uh, from Eddie Ardeni. Um, we'll share the link accompanying this podcast that shows that the S&P's forward PE ratio for the S&P 500 is 21 and a half, which is above its long-term average by a decent stretch if you go back to 2000. But meanwhile, the S&P 400 and the S&P 600, each representing respectively the mid caps and small caps, are at a forward PE of 16 and 15. Both are well within its range of the last couple of decades, uh, if not on the low end of that range. Most importantly, most strikingly, actually, is that the S&P is trading at its largest premium on a forward PE basis to these two smaller indices um, than it's been in this entire time series, uh, even extending it further, going back about 30 years. And uh, for most of this period, in fact, the S&P 500 is traded, so the large caps have been at a discount, at a lower PE than have the small and mid caps. And I think you could also draw this out internationally um, saw a chart from BNP Paribas last week that the spread between the U.S. and Europe P ratios, uh, European core indices, 
fee ratios is the highest it's been in a very, very long time. So, you know, that begs the question. I, I, I want to focus the conversation on the within U.S. indices, not the U.S. to Europe. I'm just trying to illustrate this a little further with that. Um, you know, why is this happening? What are the forces that are driving this? Um, you know, there's pretty good representation of technology across all these indices, and that's been cited as one of the foremost factors behind rising uh, PE ratios over time, right? Technology comes with structurally higher margins. Uh, investment that otherwise would be CapEx is happening in the operating line, and so there's a little more like leverage to growth in there. And, you know, meanwhile, the representation is pretty similar. So why would that be a force? The other consideration is we are still coming out of COVID and there's still some companies, um, still many companies that have not achieved what you'd call normalization, right? A resumption of 2018, 2019 levels of um, revenues and operating expense and margin profile, right? Especially fixed cost businesses who might have recovered some of their revenue pool, but are still operating well below what you'd call their steady state margins. And that resumption should lead to good earnings growth forward for similarly the large, the small, and the medium caps. Um, one of the ideas that I've been thinking about a lot is positioning and how you look at a few of the really large cap companies like Apple, Google, Amazon, these have become in some ways, not quite bond proxies, but pools of liquidity in a way that individual equities perhaps have not. And maybe it's something to do with what's happening here. Um, that's one theory I've posited. The other is positioning. Like there's been a big squeeze in positioning. And so as people uh, kind of trim down their books. Uh, they're selling some of these small caps to maintain their liquidity, uh, to defend losses elsewhere. And, you know, I just really, I, I don't know exactly what would cause it to happen right here, right now. It's really something that started halfway through 2021 and has accelerated into the end of the year and into early this year. So um, maybe before I share, I, I you know, pull some more ideas out of my head. I, I'd love to hear what you guys think if you've observed this. And I'd also love to say, you know, any favorite areas within uh, small and mid caps that you're hunting for some value now that this is such an acute uh, spread. Yeah, I, it's a fascinating topic. I mean, the, the divide is real for sure. And I'm glad we're not talking about the divide between growth and value because I'm never sure what distinction can even be drawn there that has any relevance to reality. So, but this is a pretty clear one, right? Big companies versus small companies. That's not just arbitrary. That's that's very easily defined and very real. So I think there's less of a divide if you look at some things. I mean, I think the if you look at it, if we're just considering forward PEs, I think the the spread to the Russell 2000 is a lot narrower than the, the numbers you cited. But you're right. I mean, there's no denying that there has been a huge gap. The, the big have gotten bigger the rich have gotten richer and a lot of smaller and mid-cap companies have been left relatively behind. I don't know what exactly to attribute this to. I've, I have thought a lot about this before you brought it up, Elliot. Um, some of my assumptions uh, that I, in, in assertions, I don't even know how you could go about testing these, but it, it does seem like a couple of things have really come in the past few years. We're, we're just in an era of really, really good really powerful big companies. Uh, 
And, you know, depending on your framework, right? If you're some sort of antitrust crusader, you're going to say that's because we haven't enforced antitrust laws enough and we've let monopolies run wild and we need another era of trust busting. If you're a technophile, it's going to be because the increasing benefits of technology have driven all sorts of scale economies that have accrued to just a handful at the very top, as you would kind of expect naturally. There's all sorts of explanations for it, but I think it's undeniable that it's really hard to compete against the biggest companies right now because they're just so good. And, you know, there's, there's other ways to attribute that, you know, it could be, um, you know, kind of the nature of communications these days, all the attention, eyeballs, dollars, resources get sucked up by just a handful of people and a handful of companies. And that all kind of reinforces itself. I mean, the, the other thing that I would posit as a potential explanation, at least in part, is that as technology has proliferated in certain areas and made it, you know, made the barriers to immediate entry probably never lower in some businesses. It's probably also raised the bar for ultimate success to a level that's never been higher. So you really need scale to compete against the biggest companies in pretty much every industry, which in a lot of ways just kind of re-entrenches the positions of those biggest companies, right? So it's a it's an odd situation. Um, I don't know exactly even how I'd apportion out points on a scale to to these various factors. I certainly don't know what to do about it other than to just sort of evaluate all companies somewhat agnostic to size, right? I mean, I, you know, we can invest in pretty much anything of any reasonable size. And so we do. I mean, we've invested in some gigantic companies and some really small companies and everything in between. So um, I don't necessarily see that there's going to be some kind of reversion to the mean phenomena at at play here, but, you know, I could easily be wrong. Yeah. I'll just add um, a little bit of perspective. I'm not sure why we are at a record discrepancy right now, Um, but I think we are also at um, a record share of the largest companies as a percentage of the S and P 500 index. Um, and this was really a discrepancy that you talked about, Elliot, between the S&P 500 versus the S&P 400 mid-cap and the S&P 600 small-cap. Um, so, you know, in the S&P 500, you have such a high concentration of the, the largest companies, and they, te- they happen to be tech companies. So I'm also wondering whether part of it is just a mathematical result of tech company tech companies having higher multiples than non-tech companies and the proportion being higher in the S&P 500 than in the 4 and 600. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that, but that's that's a hypothesis. And then um yeah, I, I think it also maybe shows that there's still just too much liquidity out there and uh, people need places to park a lot of money uh, without keeping it in cash. You know, as Ray Dalio says, um, cash is trash when the Fed has been doing what it's been doing. And so, you know, all equity valuations have been driven higher because of that. And the easiest places to put your money are the mega caps. Um, So that might be part of the reason. And then lastly, I've read some assertions uh, around basically saying um, 
in a late stage bull market, this is kind of what happens, although now it's really extreme. But essentially, the indices are being held up by the biggest companies, but there's already kind of bear markets happening uh, below the surface. So in terms of just um, areas to look within small and mid cap, it's you know, I, I would just say, um, for me, I'm looking at a lot of uh, real asset sectors, and those are not in your, you know, mega cap companies right now. There's a lot of, uh, you know, real asset companies that are small and mid caps, whether that's energy or commodities and so forth, but also some great, some, some good businesses. Although when you look at compounders, I think that's pretty picked over no matter the the market cap. Yeah, no, you guys all raised some very interesting points. And there's definitely, uh, you know, I said before, but I think I was a little wrong. There's, there is more technology in the S&P 500 than the smaller indices. Um, though I think even if you like equalize for that, it's still a very pronounced gap. And it's weird to me, like, I mean, even if you still want to make that argument, why was that a realization by Mr. Market suddenly halfway through last year? You know, John, you made the liquidity point. I do think that's got to be something to it, um, where these are like pools of capital as opposed to like explicit investments that are uh, seeking where they could be uh, caught most or like, you know, where they could, where, where it could flow without consequence uh, in the biggest way. And, uh, you know, you make a really interesting point, too. I'd imagine within the S&P, this degree of dispersion and valuation between the haves and haves nots is about as great as it's been. And to a certain extent, some of it's uh, warranted by how dominant these large companies are. Um, But it is it's something different where it's not like this was a realization that happened over a long period of time. It's like a very swift repricing of where some things are versus where others aren't. So I'll say one area I've been looking a lot at is, and obviously, you know, as you all know, I've had some exposure to this as it is, but there are some COVID perceived COVID winners who are now like meaningfully lagging the S&P since uh, COVID started. And some of these businesses have great inertia to them that they've even lapped tough comps pretty well. And I've been taken aback by how the market hasn't hadn't anticipated how those comps got tough. But some of these companies that have been excelling over the last year are going to face their own kind of tough tough comps this coming year. Um, so it is interesting the extent to which there's like dispersion in the market because I do think in the post financial crisis it's not something that we've really experienced all that much. There used to be way more of it than there had been for the prior decade, and it does feel like that's the kind of environment that might stick from here. And maybe it's through that that some of these things shake themselves out. Yeah, I'm I'm horrible at making those kinds of predictions. I'm wrong so much. I don't even bother. I will say I, I tend to agree. I should have pointed that out too, John. You make a great point that with with liquidity sloshing around, it has to find a home. And really successful, really well managed mega cap companies are a natural place for that. So that makes a ton of sense. Likewise, I don't think there's any denying that indexing and passive investing has played a role here as well. I'm not an anti-indexer by any stretch of the imagination. I think it does way more good than harm, but I think it also can distort things a little bit. And there are natural feedback loops there when really big companies are successful and attract a lot of capital, it tends to perpetuate for a while. So I think those are all uh, a big part of it. You know, in terms of, you know, some of the various ways to to go about this, you know, 
I, I did just pull up some numbers. I mean, there are a stunning number of companies in the Russell 2000 that are unprofitable and relatively few in the S&P 500. So that actually kind of works against this argument a little bit, because again, I mean, the, whether they're overvalued or not, the biggest companies in the S&P 500 are all profitable. Uh, they're all going to stick around for at least a period of years. The turnover there is going to be lower than it is in the small and mid-cap indices, you, you know, even the S&P mid and small cap indices. So, you know, that that is a bit of a offset to some of this. But again, I think the point definitely stands. I just, I don't know how to take advantage of it personally. Yeah, I, I think, you know, just spending more time in small and mid cap versus large cap. And I think for investors who can invest across the market cap spectrum, that makes sense generally anyway, because there you're not necessarily, especially in small and micro now, you're not competing against uh, the best investors in the world because they can't look at those companies. Um, so that's kind of the conclusion for me. And just one other point on on that discrepancy in the the PE. I think when Tesla was being added to the S and P five hundred, someone calculated that actually it would um, raise the PE of the entire index by like one or two points. I'm not sure if that's correct, but you know that could be a little a little piece of this as well. Wow, interesting. I hadn't considered something like that, but that's definitely possible. And maybe some of that aligns with when it happened. And Tesla's done nothing but go up since then too. So if if it were going to raise the PE by that much at that time. Yeah, exactly. I think the biggest, I think the biggest objection I've had over the years, or not objection, but the biggest drawback or concern is just that, you know, these mega cap companies that are driving so much of the returns and dominate so much of the market cap. Again, I don't have any big argument that they're in any sort of bubble or that they're even overvalued. They're certainly well run. They're enormously powerful, but they're so big that that kind of becomes its own problem, right? I mean, it's very odd to me that people have been sitting here and criticizing something like Berkshire Hathaway, where Warren Buffett's been saying for what, 15 years that size is going to become an anchor and drag down returns. And sure enough, size did become an anchor and drag down returns. And you don't hear anything like that from, you know, any of the mega cap companies out there in the market today, even though the same very much applies, right? I mean, it's going to get harder and harder for Apple or Microsoft or Amazon or anyone else to continue to reinvent new markets and new businesses that can continue to drive the growth rate that's going to be necessary to justify those super premium levels. I mean, they're already so big within the markets that they operate that the numbers are just undeniable. So, you know, and I've been dead wrong about that for the most part, right? I mean, I obviously should have just bought a whole bunch of them five, 10 years ago and forgotten about it. That would have been by far the best way to go. So I I could continue to be wrong about this for the next five to 10 years, but at some point the size will become an anchor. I mean, I think we could agree that that's just how the math works, right? Yeah, I totally agree. And that's why I find, um, you know, valuations above 10 times sales for these huge companies um, quite a stretch uh, because you have to make an assumption of continued strong growth for a long time and they're already so huge. All right, well, let's uh, move uh, on to you, Phil, for your topic. Great, thanks. Um, one thing that I've been working on the past couple of weeks, as I'm sure a lot of you are, is uh, annual letter season approaches. And as I've been 
compiling my thoughts and, and putting pen to paper, um, uh, I've been, I'm incorporating something about survival and the need to avoid big losses and how, particularly in your market where you've been witnessing just tons of speculative behavior as we have for the past year or two. And again, I've said this many times, but it's worth repeating. There's nothing immoral or necessarily stupid and indefensible about speculation. It's just really hard, right? It's a very difficult game. And when it takes over, predominates the market, uh, it's the predominant factor in the market. It just is worth noting, right? And I think one of the things that really stands out to me about the last year or two is that in almost all prior cases of generational crisis, you know, even less than that, at whatever standard you want to draw, whether it's the Great Depression or 9-11 that coincided with the dot-com bust or the financial crisis or anything like that, it tended to create an environment of fear and a depression of asset prices that lasted for at least a year or two. Some cases, it lasted for five or 10 years. And in this case, the attitude was fearful for a matter of a few weeks. And then we went to this pervasive risk-taking, risk-on attitude, which is is really unique in a lot of ways. I mean, it's not unprecedented. It doesn't meet, need to be the only thing we're thinking about, but it is worth thinking about at some point. So I'm going to be including something from Peter Bernstein, who's one of my all-time favorite thinkers, particularly when it comes to the topic of risk. And in an interview with Jason Zweig, which we'll, we'll link to uh, some years ago, he said something that I think is really helpful and really applies today. He said, in general, survival is the only road to riches. Let me say that again. Survival is the only road to riches. You should try to maximize return only if losses would not threaten your survival. And if you have a compelling future need for the extra gains you might earn. He goes on to say, the riskiest moment is when you're right. That's when you're most in trouble because you tend to overstay the good decisions. Once you've been right for long enough and you don't even consider reducing your winning positions, they feel so good you can't even face that. Can you imagine yourself in a bubble and can you can you manage yourself on the other side? It's very easy to say yes when you haven't even been there, but it's very hot in that oven and you can and can you save your ego as well as your wealth? I think it might I might have just said something important. Your wealth is like your children, the primary link between your future and your present. You should try to think about it in the same way. You want your children to have freedom, but you also don't want you want them to be good people who can take care of themselves. You don't want to blow it you don't get a second chance. When you invest, it's not your wealth today, it's your future that you're really managing. So there's a lot to digest there. But to me, the takeaways that have been completely lost on a lot of people in the last year or two, and something we're going to be revisiting, I think in a few weeks, is just this kind of throw caution to the wind, you only live once to the moon kind of ethos that's pervaded the market. Um, and, and this is not a commentary on anyone's individual intelligence. Some of the highest IQ people I know were, were texting me and calling me with literally with day trading ideas in March of 2020, knowing full well that that's not how I operate and knowing full well that they're not financially oriented types of all kinds. These were doctors and lawyers and all stripes of humanity that for some reason, when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, turned into casino gamblers overnight. Uh, it, it was one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. And as you look through 2020 into the events that really came to the forefront almost exactly a year ago right now with the GameStop and AMC kind of retail social media uh, phenomenon that came to light, 
that that really built. And and I don't know why. I don't know if there's any cause and effect there with the pandemic or or what. Uh, it, it's probably like any big event, a confluence of several different things, right? I mean, you had this crazy amount of money sloshing around. You had this horrible once in a generation pandemic confining people inside. You had retail commissions go to zero and the ability to trade limitlessly from your from your phone in your pocket. You had the legalization of gambling in many areas, which I think at least in the US has kind of re- removed the stigma from the you know roll the dice kind of attitude. I don't know how to attribute cause and effect to any of that kind of stuff, but I do think it all matters. But I think the point that matters is that you can't just ignore the risk of ruin. So I think it's just so odd to me that people are willing to say, I'm going to make an investment or a trade on something that has a negative expectation just because. I mean, and likewise, I actually post this poll. I do it every year in my in my MBA class and I do it with friends and family over time just for fun. If you have a 2% chance of a disaster, however you want to define a disaster, whether it's a 50% loss, 100% loss, your portfolio gets a margin call, whatever it is, I say to people, if you have a 2% chance of that happening in any individual investment or in any given period, say a year, how many of those occurrences do you need before you have at least a 50-50 chance of a disaster happening, right? I mean, some of you probably know this game. If you don't, the answer is 35, right? You only need to play that game 35 times before you're now on the wrong side of that bet. Even though the the one time you play that, I see you only have a 2% chance of something going wrong. If you play that game 35 times, you have a, a fit, worse than 50-50 chance of disaster striking. And you see people out there doing this way more than 35 times. You know, Even just in last year, there's people doing this kind of stuff more than 35 times in a month with the options trades that were going on last year, where they risk their entire portfolio or the equivalent on some really hard to justify things. So my question to you guys is, do you think this is cyclical? Do you think it's secular? What's causing it? Other than just completely avoiding it, what should we do? I mean, again, the only answer I can come up with is this is just a feature of the world. This is just kind of things that happen in markets and among humans. And and the only answer for me personally is to just try to be aware of it and avoid it. But what do you guys think I'm missing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a cyclicality, right? It happens periodically in markets. And each generation has to learn the lesson for themselves. And I've liked, uh, what was it? I think it's Phil Fisher who talks about like the market's collective memory. And like each generation has their own collective memory that's formed by different scars or like the opposite successes. And, you know, sometimes that persists for a very long time, but sometimes there's a sudden inflection to the opposite. Um, I do think you know, to the extent that there's a generation that still fears inflation every day in the U.S., it's probably people who lived through the 70s and were like much more aware of what happened than those who were born after. Um, there's a certain cadre of people who are completely scarred by the dot-com bubble and financial crisis and can't still can't embrace it. And then there's a younger crop who kind of grew up in the wake of the dot-com and uh, um, financial crisis and experienced tremendous success without knowing the other side of that. So I do think all these things like feed through and these options phenomena you're talking about, it's by and large a younger generation or so it seems. Maybe I'm a little too immersed in Twitter, but it really seems like it is a lot of younger people 
Um, and it's of a different bent too. Like if you go on the Twitter spaces of the apes about AMC and the language they speak with it, it's a combination of like this anti and anarcho capitalistic rhetoric, which just makes absolutely no sense. It's like inherently self-contradictory and its motive isn't necessarily to make money though. That's one of the things, but they want to stick it to the man and it's just bizarre um, so, you know, to the extent that they might lose, right. What, I think you said something like 34, 36 times they are buying something with the proceeds. So it's not an outright financial loss. Um, it's just bizarre, but, you know, I've always loved the definition of risk as hazard times exposure. So like, you know, your hazards, your potential for being wrong and your exposure is how much you stand to lose in each thing you're wrong on. And I think that's an important way to frame things. And, you know, to take it one step forward further, um, Soros, I think in Alchemy of Finance talked about how the most important thing to do, and by the way, Buffett talks about this too, but I like Soros' conception for what it means and what you do with it, is you survive. You keep yourself within certain parameters where, you know, fatality is just not an option. And fatality could be defined in various ways, depending on what your goals and objectives are. But, you know, keep it as a non-option altogether. And the longer you survive, the more you'll be in position to find a chance where you can thrive. And the more you'll be aware and attuned to those opportunities. And so, you know, the best trader I know talks about it in terms of situational, situational awareness. And one of the beauties of traders is that some of them are able to make money without even having like much thought about the market. It's just about understanding how to manage risk. And what you do is, you know, you understand when things are working and when they're not, and you pull them back when they're not, and you know when it's your time to like push things a little further. So, you know, put yourself in position to survive, and it's it, it's that simple. Like, don't don't let anything else get in the way. Um, and if you can't, if you do that, and if you survive for a very long time, you can't help but have great results. It's just going to be a byproduct of it. So. Yeah, I don't understand why people do this stuff with options, uh, why they would risk that much of their stash, why they would um, you know, not put themselves in position to succeed. And I think part of it is also this allure of um, markets have moved really, really fast the last two years. So that means money was made and lost really fast. And anytime things happen fast, I think there's dopamine attached to it and it gets addicting. Um, so that's that's challenging too. That's what worries me is that the dopamine is ruling the day because, again, I guess, you know, depending on your age or your exposure to, to outright gambling, right, casino style gambling or just playing poker with friends or something. Yeah, of course, it feels great when you're winning. But if you can, you know, evaluate it even at all objectively, you know that there's going to be some losing and you know how the math works against you over time if you're playing at a slot machine or or any other casino game. So I, it's. I guess I'm just so frustrated that the lesson that we need to be getting out there that should be dominating is that you need to survive, as you said, and that particularly if you're on the younger side. So let's say if you're right, I imagine you are, but I don't have any evidence of it, that the majority of this stuff is is driven by relatively younger crowds, right? Not the, the, the folks that are all about to retire, but the relatively younger crowds, they're the ones that should be doing the least of this stuff because if they blow up now, they've eliminated their entire advantage, which is that they have years and decades ahead of them, right? And if they can just survive now, the benefits 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now are going to be so massive. And instead, 
it's like they're shooting themselves in the foot now when they should be doing the opposite. And and maybe the dopamine factor rules the, the day. I don't know. The, the, the way you framed it, though, it's just how I probably should have started this of hazard time exposure is exactly the right thing. And, and, and again, the way it's being framed is just so frustrating because I get it. You know, the potential hazard may be really, really low. But again, if it's one or two percent and you take on a ton of exposure, which I would argue that this crowd is doing to an extreme, right? I mean, however you want to count the instances or occurrences, it's way more than 35% or 35 individual instances. And it's probably way higher than 2% chance of disaster in each one. So, I mean, the odds are so tilted against them that with every day and with every trade that goes in the books, the odds are just mounting, right? It's like a a freight train coming down the tracks that's just going to run people over. And it's just a matter of when, not if, and it's just hard to watch. And, and I guess one of my big fears from this is that a lot of the social unrest is driven by, by factors that don't necessarily have direct ties to, to financial implications, but it's so unhealthy for any society to have this sort of behavior. And a lot of the more um, nefarious you know, views that I've heard in the past five and 10 years really do have some connection, and particularly as they pertain to the government or financial markets being rigged or whatever the, the case may be, really do have ties to the financial crisis, right? Where no doubt there was there was plenty of bad behavior there. And so the answer that came up that a lot of people came up with was, well, two rights make a, or two wrongs make a right, apparently. And it's just really hard to reconcile. And I, I'm fearful of what's going to come next when this behavior ultimately reaches ahead. Yeah, I think it goes back to this idea of return off capital before return on capital. And I, a lot of people forget that. And there's just been a gamification of markets. So I, I, I do believe there's a cyclical component. Probably most of it is cyclical because we've had manias and panics in the past. But I think there is also a secular component here that's just related to you know, the use of technology and how we live our lives these days and how so many things are gamified. Uh, there's a propensity to gamble. Uh, it's not stigmatized at all anymore. And uh, so I think it's a combination of, of those things. Um, and I also don't really think it's just the young generation here. I think there's a lot of experienced investors that have I'll say fallen for it just because I don't endorse it. Um, and, you know, part of it is just the natural state of markets where in a bull market, uh, especially when the euphoria sets in, even experienced investors get carried away. I mean, that's happened many times in the past. And I think it's happening again. And I and And part of it, I think, also is maybe even a cynical view of, riding the wave because it's good for business and good for asset gathering. Um, so I do believe there's probably some fund managers out there who know that we're in crazy land, but they're you know happy to to dance while the music is playing because uh, it makes their cash register ring. And you know you've had examples of you know fund manager going on TV, saying, uh, oh, I'm expecting a 40% annualized return. I mean, who would 
who in their right mind would would say something like that? Like that shouldn't even be legal to to say that to a retail audience. It's just crazy. Um, and uh, and then you know also kind of what I've noticed is when the market goes down a little bit, the the fears of a crash intensify because there's speculation around who's going to blow up and who's going to have to liquidate forcefully. And will that trigger a wave that just could not be stopped? And, uh, you know, if you think about in normal times or rationally, if people are not leveraged to that extent, if the market goes down, it should be a stabilizing factor because valuations are lower. So therefore, it should be more likely to go back up rather than down. But the way things are now is, you know, you just have these momentum factors where in either direction, when it starts moving, it can just go crazy uh, and it doesn't make a ton of sense, but that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. One of the things that really, really bothers me about this too on a long list is exactly what you just brought up, which is you have very cynical fund managers and some some CEOs, uh, capital raisers of all kinds that are pumping this game and they stand to benefit enormously because even if the stock that they own or the fund that they manage blows up and ends up as a total zero, they will have taken enough off the top along the way that they will never have to worry about working again. And the people that truly have skin in the game here, ironically, are the retail guys, you know, sitting on Reddit, you know, trading out of their Robinhood accounts that truly have money that they can't afford to lose that is entirely at risk. They're not getting paid at any point along the way here. And they're the ones that are actually risking something meaningful. Whereas a lot of these fund managers that are making absolutely outrageous claims, if they have a bunch of inflows and they charge a management fee for a couple of years, they will have come out ahead. No doubt about it. And it's it's just sickening, frankly. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we we have to just accept that people make their own decisions and ultimately um, those that want to learn and be educated have more opportunities to do so today than ever before. And um, yeah, I feel like yeah, it's sad what's happening, but people have to take responsibility and uh, there's not much we can yeah. Not much there we really can isn't. do, Phil. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we're just a voice crying into the wilderness, and I guess we'll have to to learn to live with that. I I think that's probably true. I, I don't think you can mandate anything or expect any great results along those lines. It's just, you know, as I sit here and rub my eyes at this kind of behavior, just and one one last statistic I'll leave you with as we as we wrap up to to just frame how obscene the last year has been. I don't know if you guys saw this, but I think it was while we were on break over the last couple of weeks, but it's something that I totally agree with. Charlie Munger was interviewed. Um, I think it was for some something in Australia, actually, I could be wrong, but he basically said that valuations may have been crazier 20 years ago in the dot-com bubble, but that the behaviors of the last year were even more extreme. And and again, I wasn't an investor 20 years ago, but that, that seems to be my read based on history as well. And, and here's a couple of nuggets that would support that. I, I saw this the other day was that the, the common stock of AMC, right? Speaking of the apes earlier, started last year valued at roughly 475 million. And within six months, hit a peak of 27 billion. 
and it finished the year with more of its shares having traded than the second most active company, which was Apple. And along that journey, Apple had a market capitalization that was at various points anywhere from 100 times to 6,000 times higher, right? It was valued between two and $3 trillion the entire year. And its share count was more than 30 times higher. And yet AMC had 30% more shares traded by volume than Apple did. Each one of AMC's shares traded hands more than 55 times last year, whereas each Apple share traded hands about one and a half times. I mean, it just boggles the mind. So that, that's that's the world we live in. Uh, I hope if we've reached even one person that can be steered off of that road to ruin, we've, we've done a little bit of good today, right? Elliot, any closing words? I think some of those last stats were just mind-boggling. I had no clue that AMC traded more shares than did Apple. Yeah. And it's, I just think When I saw that, to, I literally... I had to look it up. Like, I, I literally spent... 20 minutes yesterday, like pulling down the numbers, pulling down the SEC filings, pulling down the volume data from Bloomberg, like putting it all on a spreadsheet and like, is this really true? Is this really accurate? And I'm like, that really, it really did. I mean, it's true. But that's not like, like there aren't people selling that story. That's like this pseudo populist. I don't even know what to call it. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's so weird. I I view that separate from the uh, ARC phenomenon. No, it is. Um, Yeah, it's just more of this pervasive attitude of somehow you can get ahead, whether it's by sticking the man, sticking it to the man, sticking it to the short sellers, whatever, even though the opposite is true, or whether you can prop up some uneconomic enterprise or whether you can out trade the guy next to you, right? whatever the case may be, you know, these are the symptoms of that sort of behavior, right? It's just those, those numbers are just staggering. Yeah. It makes absolutely no sense. Um, I remember on like one of, one of my three minute stints, I joined the ape space on Twitter. One of them was asked like, why don't you just buy like Cinemark if you think the movies are going to come back? And the guy, because this in this instance, it was a guy, he's like, I just really like AMC a whole lot better. You know, there might be good rationale behind it. I'm paraphrasing, but I just like AMC a whole lot better. And <laughs> I don't know. It's scary to think that there's actual, like, people are risking a lot of what they have, like their nest egg on, on thoughts like that. Um, but that, that is also just like, a I, I don't know, GameStop was it early in the year, but it's like a pocket of the market. It's just wild to me that there's enough capital and those kinds of thoughts to influence the market itself. I, yeah, I don't no. know. I feel like there will be good books written about how, so I, I, I do feel like there had to be some other players who are like oh, helping it along behind the scenes. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. And we're, we're hopefully going to have uh, the author of one of those books on uh, here in a couple of weeks talking exactly about GameStop and the Reddit phenomenon and all the stuff that, that happened last year. So there, there's certainly more to explore on this topic, no doubt. Absolutely. That'll be awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Elliot and Phil. Another great discussion. I hope uh, everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Talk to you guys very soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.